Father, we come to this part of the service and upon which your word is being opened. And just like every part of the service, the main point of it will not be illuminated in our hearts unless you do it for us. I pray especially for this sermon bit, uh, that you would protect me from untrue words and that you would um, reveal to their hearts whatever truth is uh, spoken to them from your word today. Build us up, Father, in your likeness. Remind us again the task of the church and the task of each Christian in this lifetime as we behold not only the death of Christ, but especially his resurrection here this Sunday. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so friends, if you've been with us for the past few months, then you would know that we've been doing this larger series through the book of Genesis. And we're going to jump back into Genesis next Sunday, but for today, since it's Easter Sunday, we're going to choose a passage that focuses more directly on the resurrection of, of Christ. But the resurrection account in the Bible that I'm going to choose from today, it's going to be taken from the Gospel of John. Why? Because there's actually a lot of connections here that John makes in Jesus' resurrection account with the book of Genesis, specifically with the Garden of Eden theme. It's everywhere in this passage. And, and why does John emphasize these explicit connections between the resurrection of Jesus and, and the Garden of Eden? Well, because he's trying to make a point to us that the resurrection is a beginning of new creation. It's the dawn of something new. It's a ray of hope amidst the darkness. And that's exactly what Mary experiences in our passage today. Our passage, John will kind of go through the resurrection account through the eyes of, of Mary, who is one of Jesus' followers. And she was downcast. She was hopeless in the beginning of the passage. She was alone in a garden in the dark of morning dawn. She wept as much as three times, our passage says, thinking that all hope was lost. But by the end of the story, what we'll see, after the resurrection really, really made sense to her, her demeanor completely changed. She was full of hope and joy and excitement, even though, this is the key, even though nothing else in her life changed. In a sense, she was still the same old Mary. She didn't get a sudden promotion at her job. Her bad habits didn't all of a sudden disappear. She was still single. Her bank account didn't increase. But she was much, much, much happier. <laughs> Why? What did change? Just one thing. She understood what Jesus' resurrection meant for her. That's it. And the question that I want to propose to us today is, do we? Has it really impacted us in a way that the Bible said it should hear from this passage? If not, then why not? Well, let's, let's get into it. This is God's word, John's resurrection account, Jesus' resurrection account from the book of John, taken from John chapter 20, verse 1 to 18. This is the word of God. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who is John himself here, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. 
So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John just had to point out he's faster than Peter. <laughs> and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must raise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced this to the disciples. I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Thus says the Lord. Three things I want to point out from our story today. The clues Mary missed, the words Mary heard, and the identity Mary received. The clues Mary missed, the word Mary heard, and the identity Mary received. Let's start with our first one, the clues Mary missed. So I'm curious that as we read that passage, did any of you guys see the Garden of Eden theme connections there in the passage? There's, there's a few of them. First of all, Mary was in a what? In a garden. And if you take a look at John chapter 19, John specifies that explicitly. Jesus was buried in a garden. So, okay, that's a setting. Mary was in a garden. And what time of day did John specifically say in verse 1, was Mary in this garden? It said that she was there early while it was still dark, he emphasizes. But why do he emphasize while it was still dark? To highlight the theme of light coming out of darkness. What did God create in Genesis chapter 1 first? Light out of darkness. And on top of that, verse 1 also says that all this happened on what day? The first day of the week, which in the Jewish calendar is a Sunday. What happened on a Sunday in Genesis chapter 2 during creation? It's when God rested and completed his work of new creation. So Mary here is in a garden on the day when God finished his work of new creation while light was still coming out of the darkness of dawn. If this isn't a painting of Eden, then I don't know what is. There's so many clues. There's so many hints. And 
And we're not saying that Mary should have seen all the signs and go, huh, Jesus is about to resurrect. Like, that's not what we're saying. We're not rebuking Mary here for not seeing the signs. But the, the, the theme in this passage, we can't deny that there's a comment here on Mary's lack of faith. That's kind of the feel of the passage. When the angels and Jesus asked her, why are you weeping? That was a rhetorical question. They're saying, Mary, you should be rejoicing. You shouldn't be weeping. Why are you weeping? Didn't Jesus tell you that three days after he dies, he'll raise up the new temple, which is his body? It's the third day. <laughs> Didn't Jesus say explicitly, I am the resurrection right after he resurrected Lazarus from the dead just a few chapters ago? Why are you crying? Even after she saw the stone that blocked Jesus' tomb in verse 1 rolled away, it says, it still didn't click in her head. She ran back to the disciples in verse 2 and said, someone's taken Jesus' body. So she thought maybe that the Pharisees took Jesus' body for political agendas or grave robbers stole it for financial gain. But the idea that Jesus resurrected from the dead wasn't even a potential in her mind. So let's not think that people back then were just these gullible people who just believed Jesus resurrected. No. They had reasoning and logic too. They're like, you know what? People don't raise up from the dead every day. That's probably not what happened. Just like us modern readers. So Peter and John heard Mary's report and they ran back into the tomb, entered, and they saw the linen cloth which was wrapped around Jesus' body, look at this, still laying there, verse 6 says, and the face cloth that covered Jesus' face, face folded up neatly by itself, verse 7 says. Now think about this. If the Pharisees were the ones who took Jesus' body away, how much sense would it be to take the body out of the already conveniently wrapped linen cloth first before moving it? It makes it a lot harder to move. And why would they fold up the face cloth neatly in its own place? That makes no sense. And if grave robbers took the body, why did they leave the expensive linen behind? Those are really expensive. They could have sold it for a lot of money. The state of the tomb actually says here that it's unlikely Pharisees or grave robbers or Roman soldiers took the body. And, and seeing all this, verse 6 to 8, hints to us a bit that maybe Peter started to believe, although it's not clear. Maybe he did. Look at verse 6. It says there that when Peter saw the linen cloth, the word saw there in the Greek is not the normal word for seeing, which is blepo. But the Greek word here for saw is theoreo, which is where we get the English word theorize from. Peter saw the linen cloth in verse 6 and started to theorize in his head. Hmm. It doesn't seem like someone stole the body. And verse 8 would go as far as saying that he maybe started to believe a little bit. But then verse 9 quickly clarifies that they still didn't fully get it. For as yet as they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead, it still didn't click. So Peter and John both went back home. Mary stayed behind, crying. Jesus was all she had. And now she's lost his body. She's hopeless. She's sad. And she gathered the strength to finally confirm and go into the, t into the tomb herself. And what did she see there? Two angels. Stick with me a little bit longer. This is, again, garden imagery. Okay? One angel, specifically John says, was at the head of the empty linen cloth, and the other angel was at the feet of the empty linen cloth. 
Now, this is exactly how in the Old Testament the Ark of, a covenant, of the Covenant was meant to be, God said. Do you remember that? In the Old Testament, there's the Ark of the Covenant. God said, my presence will be upon this Ark of the Covenant, but you must carve two statues of angels, one at the head of it and one at the feet of it. Why? To remind people that my presence is guarded by angels. You can't just get back to it like you want. Think about this. Where in the Bible do you remember angels protecting God's presence? In the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of Eden. God placed angels there. You can't enter back in. Another Eden imagery. So let's put everything together here. Okay? Let's, let's wrap this up. Mary heard Jesus say, He is the resurrection, and that He'll raise up his, uh, the temple, which is His body, in three days after He died. And now, three days after he died, she finds herself in a garden on a Sunday where light was literally coming out of the darkness with the linen cloth that wrapped around Jesus' body folded up neatly in an empty grave. And Jesus' body, which is what? God's presence with us, is no longer protected and hid behind two angels as it was in Eden, but it's gone. All these signs, all these clues, but yet it still didn't click. And the reader at this point is meant to go, Mary, what else do you need? Like, what other clue do you want? Do you need Jesus to himself come and appear before you? Which he did. And she still didn't get it. In verse 15, Jesus himself came to her and asked, woman, who are you seeking? And she thought he was a gardener and asked him whether or not he stole Jesus' body. And it's like, why the tension? Why the buildup in this passage? Because, friends, here's the point. John is trying to tell us that Mary is just like us. Peter and John is just like us. No one will be able to take the leap of faith to believing that Jesus really did resurrect from the dead just by merely looking at the clues and evidences alone. It's not going to happen. Now, don't get me wrong. They're important. And these evidences and clues and reasons and data, there's a, there's a lot of them. I can dish them out to you for the next 20 minutes if we wanted to. But what this passage is saying is that those things, those things are not the things that's going to make it click in our heads it didn't for Peter, it didn't for John, it didn't for Mary. Their eyes saw everything it needed to see. Mary even saw Jesus himself, but none of them believed. They were stuck still in their hopeless despair, and they were stuck still in their loneliness. So what then finally made it click? What'll make it, what'll make it click for us as well? Let's go to our second point, the voice Mary heard. So here Mary was in verse 16. Her eyes were still veiled by her own tears, talking to Jesus, who she thought was a gardener. But friends, it was here what her eyes couldn't see, her ears heard. Mary, this gardener called out. Mary. And it was like immediately, After she heard Jesus call her by name, 
that did something in Mary's heart that no evidence or clue around her could have ever done. The single word Mary, a commentator said, spoken as Jesus had always uttered it, removed her blindness. Rabboni, or teacher, John re- uh, recorded Mary respond here in their original Aramaic, emphasizing the intimacy and the closeness between them. Mary, teacher, and it all suddenly clicked. Look at verse 14 and 16 with me in your pronounce. There's an interesting detail John puts here in the text. Verse 14 says that Mary turned to Jesus when he approached her, thinking that he was a gardener, had a whole conversation with him face to face. But then look at the middle of verse 16. Mid-conversation, when Jesus called Mary by name, she turned again, it says. But where to? That's weird. She was already talking face-to-face to Jesus. Where did Mary turn to when Jesus called her name? Well, we can't know for sure, but most commentators agree, and I am inclined to also think, Mary here turned to the empty tomb. Mary, and it clicked. All of a sudden, the empty tomb made sense. Everything made sense. Why? Simply because, here it is, she recognized Jesus' voice. You know, if I'm honest, most Sundays before I come up here and do my thing, I tell myself, Tez, you know what you're about to do, right? You're about to stand up in front of hundreds of very, very, very educated urban professionals. And you're about to tell them that someone who died raised back up to life. (laughs) Like, do you realize how ridiculous you're going to sound to many, many people here? Are you sure you don't want to just ask Sam to do it? And you know what gives me the confidence? (laughs) To come up here and say something as crazy to you today. That Jesus resurrected up from the dead. It's not my persuasive reasoning skills. It's not because I have some airtight empirical evidence hidden in my back pocket that'll shut down all questions out there about the resurrection. What gives me the courage to come up here and do this today is because Jesus promised me that his sheep will hear his voice. That's it. His sheep will hear his voice. The death and resurrection of Christ will make as much sense to you as it did to Mary until Jesus calls you to himself, like he did Mary. Now, I'm not saying evidence and reason play no role at all. Of course it does. But this idea that we can't believe in something until we have so much evidence about it, like so much, to where faith is no longer needed at all in the decision-making. Friends, that's not how we make any decision in any of our lives. Think about a day in your life. You wake up in the morning, 
and you make coffee from grinded coffee beans you bought from a store a few days ago, and then you drink it. Why'd you drink it? Why'd you put that in your body? Do you have empirical evidence that those black grinded pieces of dirt looking things are actually coffee beans? That came from the place that the company claims it comes from? Did you, did you oversee the process from farm to cup? No, you didn't. You know what you did? You had reasons to believe that they were. The packaging looks nice. You bought it from a well-known establishment. Trusted people that know their coffee has testified to the legitimacy of this company. And you took a look at all of those reasons. You theorized in your head about it. And then what you did is you took a leap of faith and you drank that stuff. And then you go to work and you spend eight to 10 hours a day in this office. Why? Because they pay you, they'll say. But how do you know? Like, for sure, for sure. Well, one, you know, they signed a contract that makes them liable if they don't pay me, and they've done it 15 times before, so, like, why wouldn't they do it again this month? But you see, again, those aren't empirical evidences. Those are reasons to believe that they would probably do it again this month. So what you did is you took a leap of faith and spent 40% of your day in that cubicle. And then you got in a car to go home. But how dare you think that that car will not break down mid-traffic and kill you? I mean, how do you know? Like, for sure, for sure, you don't. You don't have empirical evidence. You know what you had? You had reason. The car looks nice. It says Bluebird or Grab or Gojek or other companies out there. I don't want to feel like I'm favoring some over the others. It looks legitimate. So what you did is you took a leap of faith and you entered into that car. No one makes decisions in life because they have airtight empirical evidence that shatters all opposing doubt. That's not how we work. Everyone makes decisions in life based on a combination of two things, reason and faith. <laughs> that's, that's how we make any decision, including the decision that you have before you today. Did Jesus rise back up from the dead? Is Christianity true? And what I can do, I can give you the first part of that equation, the reasons as to why it's sensible, the logic as to why it's possible if you believe in the existence of a God who can do that, etc., etc., etc. But what I can't do is give you that second part of the equation that you need, the faith. That one, Jesus must call you to himself. I can't do that. That's what this passage is saying. Okay. Okay. So then, so then what does that mean that Jesus calls me to himself? Like, am I going to hear an audible whisper that Jesus calls my name? Well, no, this isn't literal, okay? Just like when Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice. That doesn't mean that everyone who becomes a Christian will hear Jesus' voice in their head. This is metaphorical, all right? Okay. So then how do I know that Jesus has called me to himself? If it's not an audible whisper, what is it then? Let's go to our last one. The identity Mary received. So Mary here, finally after hearing Jesus call her to himself, overjoyed. She's ecstatic. She's full of hope. Jesus is alive. 
said in verse 17, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Three quick subpoints here we see about whether or not, how can we know whether or not Jesus has called us to himself. Okay? First, a person who's been called out by Jesus feels a familial bond with other Christians. Jesus told Mary to go to my, what? Brothers, he said. And this is the first time ever in the Gospel of John that the phrase brothers was used to describe Jesus' disciples. Before this, it was only used to describe actually biological family. So, how do you know that you've been called by Jesus? Not by hearing an audible whisper. But one, you'll know that when you feel the sense of affinity with other Christians as family, Okay, so what does that mean? I have to like every single Christian I meet? Well, do you like every single family member you have? No. It means that you'll find a supernatural resilience within you that you never felt before. To love and to endure and to forgive and to long suffer with other believers in Christ who's been called by Jesus to himself even when they're being really, really, really annoying to you. As family does. Second, a person who's been called by Jesus believes that Jesus' death on the cross actually benefited them. So, this place where the disciples were at, she said, go tell my brothers. You know, at that place, there were women as well. It wasn't just men. So what the, why, why did Jesus say, tell my brothers and not my brothers and sisters that I'm alive? Now, whenever the masculine pronoun is used in the Bible to describe all Christians, including women, so for example, the Bible calls us all sons of God many times, including women, that doesn't mean that the Bible is sexist. It's actually the opposite. This is inheritance language. Back then, in family units, who do you think would receive the full inheritance from the Father? It's the oldest brother. So you know what Jesus is doing here when he calls women brothers as well? He's saying that in my kingdom, women get inheritance too. A person who's been called by Jesus knows that the inheritance of eternal life is theirs, no matter what their earthly status is, no matter how much they feel like they don't deserve it. Second clue. Third clue. A person who's been called by Jesus views God as their Father. Look at verse 17. It says, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father. To my God and your God. A sign that you've been called by Jesus is that you don't feel like God is some distant being up there controlling the universe detached from you. Or some policeman out there out to give you a ticket. Or some judge up there looking to prosecute you. He's not even a father up there overseeing his children. But he is your father up there. Your God up there. Who will never take his eyes off of you or deny you access to him ever. That's how you know Jesus has called you by name. In short, you're not going to hear an audible whisper. In short, in your heart, you're convinced that through Jesus' gracious cross, You've been made a child of God, and now you long to extend that grace to other people, especially other children of God, even though they're really, really, really hard to love.
someone else's 